The title of today's sermon is Where Lord and is found in the book of Luke chapter 18 verses 1 through 8. Well, as you know, I'm a an expositional exegetical preacher, which means I preach through the word of God verse by verse, and I do not vary from that. And so we're going through the book of Luke and we're in a section in which Jesus has been teaching his disciples on the core values of discipleship, and he's asked a question about when. When he will return. Knowing that he was soon to depart, as he had warned over and over, they wanted to know when he would return. So that's where we find ourselves in the book of Luke, chapter 18, as Dave read for you. Would you bow with me and let us ask God to direct our thoughts, our minds, as we listen to the preaching of his word. Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for the blessings of life. We pray, Lord, that we might take advantage of that small window of opportunity that we have while we are here on this earth to live faithfully and righteously for you as we await your soon return. For it's in Christ's name that we ask it. Amen. The basic basic question of all religions that they try to answer is a simple one. Where do people go when they die? The answer to that question is not as obvious as it might seem, though. There are many answers being offered out there in the marketplace of ideas within our culture. But as you know, there is only one correct answer to that question. All other answers must, therefore, be wrong. Now, some say that the dead go to the great spirit in the sky. Others assert that the essence of a man will rejoin the essence of God. Well, I don't really know about that, and I don't get it, but that's what yoga is all about. Others state that we change life forms via reincarnation. We We evolve into a higher or a lower life depending on our current life circumstance. Another religion states that life ceases at death and that the dead await Allah's choice to resurrect us to life or to judgment. Now, as you know, I'm a guy who likes to listen to classic rock or folk music in my car. That's because that's what I grew up on. Maybe you grew up on something different. So I have no affinity at all for alternative rock music or grunge, as it used to be called. So I never listened to Nirvana, you know, the band from here in the Northwest. But they did, in, they did a song entitled Lake of Fire, and I share with you the lyrics. This is about where the lost go, according to Nirvana. They sang, where do bad folks go when they die? They don't go to heaven where angels fly. Go to the lake of fire and fry. See him again on the 4th of July. People cry and people moan, look for a dry place to call their home, try to find some place to rest their bones, while the angels and the devils try to make them their own. Where do bad people go when they die? They don't go to heaven where the angels fly. They go to the lake of fire and fry. See him again till the 4th of July. Well, maybe Cobain knew something that other people don't know. I don't know. Did you ever notice how most rock lyrics make no sense at all? At least this had some context to it. Anyway, 
Last week in Luke, Jesus was teaching his disciples about the timing of his glorious appearing. And at the end of chapter 17 in Luke, Jesus mentioned that vultures would be eating the flesh of the lost dead. Now, I broke my glasses this week, and I went to get them fixed. But they unfortunately told me my frames were no longer in stock. So if I'm playing with my glasses, that's why I get them fixed next week. So the vultures are eating on the dead flesh of the lost. And the disciples are a bit perplexed by this. And they ask the question to the Lord, which seems out of context. They say, Lord, where? Now, you could scratch your head on that one until you realize that they're asking Jesus the question as to where do the wicked dead go? Or what happens when we die? As you know, in this section of the book of Luke, Jesus has been developing the core character traits of his disciples. His followers were to be working on these core values, developing them within themselves, because they were going to need them when Jesus departed this place to go to be with his father. So Jesus has been answering this question posed first by the Pharisees of when will the second coming happen? And after he blew off the Pharisees with an answer they didn't like, he turned to his disciples and he answered them in great detail about when. And that's where the disciples asked this question of where? Where do the lost go at the judgment? So the Lord answers this important question using another one of his teaching tools that he often uses out of his bag of answers. He uses a parable. And as you will recall, a parable is an earthly story used as a teaching vehicle to illustrate a heavenly truth. The Greek word for parable is a compound word. It's made up of two Greek terms to form one. The first is para, which means beside, and the second is balo, from which we get the term ball. It means to literally to throw. So if you put those together, it means to throw alongside. So a parable is a parable of, or a, a, an illustration of comparison. And Jesus uses parables to illustrate divine truth. Now there are two different ways you can compare things. One, or one is by comparison of two similar objects, and the other is by contrasting two objects. In the text that we look at today, many make the mistake of seeing this as a parable of comparison when it is actually a comparison of contrast. The contrast is between an unjust judge and the righteous and holy judge who is to come. We see in this text an unjust judge who is emotionless, who is passive and who cares not about his fellow man or God. He makes decisions in legal cases without any reference to either God or man. He does so based only on his own wisdom, his own power, and his own personal welfare. He never looks to God for help, nor does he consider his fellow man. Well, with that as our introduction, would you turn with me to the book of Luke, chapter 18, and we will pick up with verse 1 this morning. Now, if you're here and you don't have a Bible with you, you can find our text on page 1046 of the Pew Bible. Let's look at the so-called parable of the unjust judge, beginning in verse 1, chapter 18. 
We read, Now Jesus was telling the disciples a parable to show that at all times they ought to pray and not to lose heart. Now that's the action that Jesus wants his disciples to model. That's the point of the parable in the disciples' life. But that's not the main teaching of it. I want you for for just one moment to imagine being a disciple of Jesus Christ at this time. You've just come out of the backwaters of Galilee. You've never left your hometown before. And suddenly you're roaming the streets and the villages and the backyards of Israel with God himself. You're standing in the very presence of the Lord Jesus who's proclaiming these hidden mysteries from eternity past. I can't even imagine it. So these men had many important questions to ask Jesus, not only about how to live their lives, but about what the future would hold for them and when the judge of the world would come and judge the living and the dead. How would God determine who is to be rewarded for their lives and who were to be judged? Jesus tells the disciple this parable for two purposes. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm often confused by theology. And oftentimes, I need encouragement to keep at it. I'm sure those of you who are in my end times study have experienced that recently. We need to keep at it if we're going to understand the full breadth of Scripture. We might think we understand something at one point in time, but then the light bulb goes on at another time when we understand more fully. I think that's what happened to me as I studied out this text today. It's difficult to deal with new ways of thinking or looking at, at Scripture. Oftentimes, though, it can be hurtful, even discouraging and confusing. So Jesus begins here with an encouragement for his disciples to be in prayer at all times. That can be discouraging because we are so prayerless. He says to be in prayer at all times. There is a sense in which men are always to be in prayer, especially during times of testing. Jesus states the believer is to be in prayer. He's speaking to believers or talking about believers who will have just gone through the tribulation. They are to be in prayer at all times. Now, that doesn't mean that any believer is to be holding a prayer meeting 24-7, 365. What that insinuates is that the believer, especially those at this time of great wrath and discomfort, tribulation saints, will need to have an attitude of prayer if they're going to survive the long and discouraging time of persecution. This text deals directly with those who will live to the end of the great tribulation, awaiting the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. But it has application to us today in the church age. The immediate application that Jesus makes is for those who are awaiting the judgment of God to be in prayer. To be praying at all times. You see, there are two alternatives that we can choose from in order to face difficult times in our lives. It's as true today as it will be for those who go through the tribulation. The disciples can either choose one of these two ways to deal with troubles. Each of us needs to decide how we will deal with those difficulties in our own lives. You can either do it by praying or by fainting. 
It can either be a day of fear or it can be a day of faith, in other words. When those troubled times come into your life, it can be either be a day of faith or a day, day of fear. I think about those who lived through World War II, and some of them are here with us this morning. Who wouldn't have thought that the Lord was coming right then? Hell had been released on the face of planet Earth with the Nazi hordes marching across half the planet and taking people captive and killing them by the millions while trying to gobble up the whole world. There, at one point in time, stood Great Britain, all on its own, facing those who wanted to dominate the world. Well, in 1940, the Blitz came and bombs were dropped so much on the city of London that one church erected a sign in front of it that read, If your knees are knocking together, kneel on them. That's exactly what Jesus is telling believers during the tribulation. And he's telling us, men ought to pray all the time. Paul put it a little differently, saying, pray without ceasing. Clearly, the point of being in continuous prayer or having an attitude of prayer is that so that the disciples will not, as the text tells us, will not lose heart. Do not lose heart, Jesus says to them. Or it might say, do not faint in your translation. In other words, prayer enables you to stay, stay strong and face the trials and tribulations of the day in which you live. Now, these tribulation saints will face wickedness and wrath like no others had ever faced. Interestingly, the Greek word that's translated there as faint or do not lose heart is egekiko, and it means don't give in to the bad. If you give in, if you give up, you will faint. Now, there was a preacher down in Georgia who, who was famous, and he had, a, he had a variety of interesting expressions that he would use in his sermons. For example, he would say this, When a man prays for a corn crop, God expects him to say amen with a hoe. That's not a lady of the night, it's H-O-E. In this culture, you've got to define everything. So in other words, when, when you're praying to God, get busy. Get out there with the hoe if you want corn. If you're praying to God to ask, asking him for corn, then go out and hoe the corn. The Lord has called us to pray during tough times and then get to work. Otherwise, your heart will fail within you. He said that men ought to pray and not to faint. I believe prayer is a Christian world view. By praying, we show that we believe in God and that he is in control of the events of our lives, those seen and unseen. Now, in the last two weeks, Jesus has taught two core values to his disciples that they were to put into practice in their lives. Those core values were to be thankful and to be ready. To be thankful for God and his provision and to be ready for his return. Thankfulness is an expression of something that has already been received. Prayerfulness is an attitude expressed of things hoped for. Jesus now gives us an example of an unjust judge in this parable that begins in verse 2. He will compare and contrast himself to the judge. Looking at verse 2, it reads, In a certain city there was a judge who did not fear God 
and did not respect man. So the setting of this parable is a judge's courtroom. But it's not like we think of a judge's courtroom today. We would go down to the center of town to the finest building in the city because, you know, they got the money to build it. But in this day, the judge's courtroom would have been a simple tent erected on the outskirts of of the village or town. And this judge would have ridden the circuit, if you will, from one village to the next, ruling on cases. He would sit regally in his tent, surrounded by all of his assistants, as those who had legal cases would come to him and ask him to rule on it. But to get your case heard by this judge, you must have been approved by his assistants and the judge himself. That usually meant someone had to be bribed, either the judge or one of his assistants. Clearly, then, this is not a Jewish judge. You see, in Jewish cities, legal disputes were brought before the village elders who sat at the city gates, and there they would rule upon those disputes. A Jew would never take a legal action to a Roman court unless it was of a last resort. Under Jewish law, a civil matter would be taken to arbitration to three judges. To Roman courts, there was only one judge. In the Jewish courts, there were three. One was appointed by the plaintiff, one was appointed by the defendant, and the other was chosen by uh, an independent third party. But in this parable, the judge is a Roman appointee of either Herod or the sitting proconsul. These judges were noted for their corruption. However, if the plaintiff had any influence within the city or had enough money, he could easily gain victory in the court by bribing or influencing the judge. But if he were poor, he had no hope of getting satisfaction in his case. This judge, we learn, is indifferent to the will of God or to the wishes of the people whom he ruled over. So this judge was evil, unprincipled, lawless, and void of any moral character. And in fact, he had been corrupted by his own power. His judgments flowed not from the law, but from his own personal interests and preferences. Now in verse 3, we see the confrontation. The complainant comes forward to ask for justice we read that there was a widow in the city. Obviously, a widow is the kind of person that all should be concerned about. She was a widow who was poor, helpless, friendless, destitute, and without hope. She represents all those in this world who are needy, oppressed, and helpless. The city she came from is unnamed, just like the widow is unnamed. So all of Jesus' listeners would have identified with this woman, for they all were related to some widow somewhere. The problem for for this poor widow is that her husband had died, obviously. That's why she's a widow. But also, she'd become the target of an unscrupulous Jew who was trying to take advantage of her in the system, the legal system. Some have speculated that the person was trying to take her home, her land, or her inheritance. Whatever, we see this is happening by some spurious action that takes place in the courtroom. 
So she kept coming to the judge saying, give me legal protection from my opponent. Now, it was the judge's responsibility to settle legal disputes fairly and to right wrongs done against innocence, just as it is in our legal system today. But for this woman to win her case, she had three obstacles to overcome. First, she had to overcome the obstacle that she was a woman. You see, women in this culture were considered to be like children. They had no privileges in in a legal sense. Secondly, under both Jewish and Roman law, this woman had no standing at all in a court. She had to go to court with a male. She had to be accompanied by either her husband or another male family member for her to be heard. The family, male family member would actually stand next to her and speak for her in the court system. And since she was a poor woman, she had to overcome the obstacle that she had no money she could afford to bribe the judge with. So there was no way that she was going to get protection from the law that she needed and that the law was supposed to provide for her. So she pleads with the judge to give me legal protection from my opponent. And when she doesn't get it, she keeps coming to the judge and keeps continuing to ask him for justice. Now, we know this is so because of the phrase that says she kept coming to the judge. It's written in Greek as eriketo, and it's in the imperfect tense, which means she kept coming continuously. It's a continuous concept in Greek. So imagine, if you will, the tent courtroom on the outskirts of town, and this woman come in, comes in and pleads her case to the judge. He listens to her for a few minutes, and then he says to the poor widow, I'm sorry, but I can't help you. Lady, there's nothing I can do. I wish there was something I could do for you, but there's not. Good day, madam. But then, the next day, who's sitting out in front of the tent to plead her case once more but this widow? The judge sees her, and he goes to the back of his tent and tries to hide behind the curtain as he calls one of his associates over, his assistants, and says, what's that, what's that widow doing back here again? Well, she wants to see you, judge. Go tell her I'm too busy and I can't see her, and, and I'm going to lunch. Well, she brought her lunch with her. So, this woman, this widow, comes that day and the next day and the next day. There she is, day after day, seeking justice. You see, this widow is representative of all the poor and the defenseless in this world. It's obvious that she didn't have any resources that could give her hope of ever winning her case. But she does have one weapon in her arsenal, and that is her persistence. Her only hope to get justice was to persist, not stop until he would be forced to rule over her case. Now, there's no doubt that she's been treated unjustly. She's been the victim of a crime by a fellow Jew, and she's also been victimized by the judge. In other words, she's been doubly victimized by those who are supposed to watch over her and care for her. So this judge refuses to do what he has been installed as a judge for, to protect her and to give her that which she was entitled to under the law. She was only seeking justice from this judge, but she was spurned because she lacked money and lacked 
someone who was important to help her. So the judge kept on refusing her, but instead of her going home in defeat, she kept coming and coming again and again. And in verse 4, we read the judge's response to her persistence. For a while, for a while, for a while, he was unwilling. But afterward, he said to himself, even though I do not fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow bothers me, she wears me out, I will give her legal protection. Otherwise, by continually coming to me, she is wearing me out. We see the heart and the mind of the unrighteous judge. At first, he refuses her request. She's not going to give me money. She's not going to bribe me. Forget it. But when she kept coming to him, when she persisted in bothering him, he sat up and he took notice. The Lord shows us the internal conversation that's going on in this man, in this judge, when he says it's within himself. The judge literally says to himself, I've tried brushing her off. I told her to get lost, but now she won't leave me alone. She's driving me nuts. Last night I even dreamed about her. She's nagging me to death in this courtroom saying, Judge, give me justice. Judge, give me justice. Well, this judge had finally met his match. Now, don't miss the point here. It's not her complaining or persistence that is the point of this parable. That's not the point. What, when the unjust judge said to himself, I am not afraid of God nor of man, he's making the point that he didn't have an authority over him. So when this woman, this crazed woman came to him, in his point of view, came to him with his his persistence, he only responded to her because of her persistence. And so he reasoned to himself, what this widow is saying about me out there in the community, out there in the village, might harm me. She's ruining my reputation amongst the people. And it might get back to Herod or the proconsul who appointed me. So this judge was much like those judges in Chicago. He reasoned to himself, I'll give her justice if it'll get rid of her. She's wearing me out and I can't go on like this. So he throws up his hands in disgust and rules for her. You see, it wasn't a ruling on religious grounds. The judge had no religion and no God. It wasn't a a ruling based on social justice, for the judge didn't give a hoot about people. He simply cared about himself and the good living that he made off his corruption, selling justice to the highest bidder, just like in Chicago. But there's a Clint Eastwood movie that says, where Clint says, Man's got to know his limitations. That's right, a man's got to know his limitations, and this judge knew his. This woman pushed him to the brink. Now, looking back to that verse, I'd like you to focus in on one little phrase before we move on, and that phrase is, even though. In Greek grammar, that's called a concessive clause. I'm probably telling you more than you want to know. But this is despite the known facts, a concession is made, even though, despite the judge's better judgment, in spite of what was best for him, even though he was going to get nothing out of this, he conceded because of her persistence. 
We see that clearly in the movement of the judge's thinking. First, he would not help her. Then he would not help her for a while. And finally, because she kept bothering him, he gave her what she wanted. In doing this, the judge ignored the two greatest commandments. Twice, he said in the parable, and when the Bible says something twice, you need to focus in on that. Twice, he said he did not fear God nor respect men. When something is repeated like that, you better sit up and take attention. What he was saying was he did not love God, nor did he love his neighbor as himself. So, to get rid of her, because she kept bothering him, he gave her what he wanted, what she wanted. She literally wore him out. She wore him out. And the Greek says, this says she gave him a black eye. How did he get a black eye? As she sat in the, that tent of meeting, the front of the tent of meeting, it didn't look good for the judge's reputation as she kept crying out for justice. He was getting a black eye from people. And it might get back to his bosses, Herod or the proconsul. You see, the judge didn't give a rip about her, but he did care about his reputation and his ability to keep collecting the corruption that was his. This reminds me of a previous parable we looked at. Maybe you'll remember it, the parable of the persistent friend at midnight. You see, the point is not about the widow's persistence or the judge's unjustness. The parable is intended to, not intended to compare the Lord with the unjust judge. Its intent is to contrast Jesus against this despicable man and his reason for judgment. It is though, as Jesus is saying through this parable, if, in the end, an unjust and capricious judge can be wearied into giving a poor woman justice, how much more? How much more will God, who is a loving father, give his children what they need without all that begging and pleading? The point is simple. If a corrupt and sensitive judge will respond with justice for a pleading woman, how much more will our loving Savior do what's right for us in the middle of great tribulation? This is meant to give believers hope. This is meant to give us hope in the midst of trials and tribulations, especially for those that live through the end times. They may be tempted to think that, and you may be tempted to think at some point in time in your life when the world seems to be falling apart that he has been delayed in his coming and there is no end in sight. Now we see the Lord's application of this parable as he speaks to his disciples beginning in verse 6. And the Lord said, and the Lord said, and the Lord said, hear what the unrighteous judge said, now, now will not God bring about justice for his elect who cry out to him day and night, and will he delay long over them? Jesus said to his disciples, did you hear what the wicked, evil, insensitive, self-centered judge from Chicago has just said? I had a good friend in Chicago named Bill Schultz. Bill 
was the proud owner of a 1966 fire engine red Dodge Coronet 440 with a 383 cubic engine stuffed into the front of it. It had a knuckle buster four speed on the floor and posi traction in the rear end. Bill liked to drag race. Bill liked to go fast. One day as a teenager, I needed a ride to work, so Bill picked me up in his Dodge Coronet. Naturally, we took the fast way to work, if you get my drift. It wasn't long before the police were pulling us over to the side. Naturally, Bill was ticketed for driving too fast for conditions. I'll never forget what happened next. In Illinois, the policy was at the time, if you received a traffic violation, they would take your license from you, write the ticket, and then staple the ticket to the license and return to you a yellow copy of the ticket for your court appearance. Obviously, Bill had no license because he had been pulled over and ticketed so many times. So he gave the officer one of the yellow tickets for the last offense that he had been charged with. The officer wrote out a new ticket, came back and gave Bill the new yellow ticket. Bill thanked the officer and then leaned over past me and opened up the glove box. The glove box was overflowing and jammed with yellow tickets of every stripe and kind. The officer then walked back to his car and we literally sped away. Well, I asked Bill the obvious question. Bill, how do you keep driving with all these tickets? Don't they suspend your license? He he laughed out loud. He said, Scott, this is Chicago. I have a lawyer, and my lawyer has a friend. His friend knows a traffic judge. Every few months, I give him $500, and voila, my tickets just disappear. Well, let me ask you, dear ones, when you go to the Lord in prayer, do you think of him as an unjust judge that can be bribed by your works? The good things that you do? When you go to the Lord in prayer, do you think of him as just another cheap politician that can be bought off? Do you think he does things for political reasons? If you think that way, you're wrong. God is not an unjust judge. If you go back to that verse we've been looking at, you'll notice the word not in that verse. That is a Greek double negative, which means no, not ever, not under any circumstance. Our righteous judge is not like the unrighteous self-seeking judge in the parable. But, but, if this unjust judge hears the request of this poor widow who keeps on bugging him and he does something for that's right, how much more will our Lord in times of discouragement and trials and tribulations, when he hears us pleading him, how much more will he answer us? If the unjust judge will give justice to the widow, how much more will the good and the righteous judge give his children quick justice? The Lord uses a form of logic here that was commonly used by the rabbis during biblical times. It's an argument from the lesser to the greater. In doing so, Jesus asserts that this uncaring judge, the lesser, acts only out of his own personal interest for this widow. How much more, how much more will your loving Savior, the greater, take care of you? whom he loves and died for. 
He will never put you off. He will never shuttle you to the back of the room because he cares for you. He is not like an unjust judge, but is the righteous judge of the universe. Well, we're instructed to, I heard that, amen. We are instructed to pray continually, or day and night, says the text, if you will. Not to spurn a sluggish God to action. First of all, time is not defined the same way by God as we define it. Our God always hears every time we cry to him. He hears all our prayers and he promises to answer them swiftly. He will rescue people from wrath and bring judgment on those who are evil at the end of times. How do I know that? Because the Bible says so. Paul wrote to the Romans, urging them to never take upon themselves revenge, but leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, and I will repay, says the Lord. The righteous judge will bring about justice at just the right time. For the believer during the tribulation, who's crying out for vengeance, the question is of timing. We read in Revelation chapter 6, How long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain, delay, from judging and avenging our blood and those who dwell on the earth? Just a little bit later, John the Relevator writes, Because of his judgments, which are true and righteous, he judges the great harlot who was corrupting the earth with her immorality, and he has avenged the blood of his bondservants. It's always the right time when God acts on behalf of the elect, his chosen ones. Now, you know the elect is an Old Testament term for God's people, the chosen ones. God's chosen people, Israel. Those who will need to be avenged during the tribulation. There's the contrast here between the widow who could get no justice from an unjust judge and those who need vengeance and justice applied in the tribulation from a just judge. But that delay of his intervention is the question. Why does God delay in the hearts and the minds of man? I believe it's because God has to complete his program on earth in his timing. His delay is not meant to punish the chosen ones, but to vindicate them. Now, I went online and I read many of the sermons of brother preachers who have tackled this parable before. And they always zoom in on the value of persistent prayer. And I thought through the text. Jesus is speaking about discipleship and then the timing of the second coming. Why would he then throw in a parable on the persistent prayer? It's not about the persistency of believers in prayer. This is about we serve and worship a judge who is just and will apply justice at just the right time. A lot of justs in there. God will finally hear the cries of his people and he will answer them. But to God, one day is like a thousand years and a thousand years is like one day. We do not have the same concept of time as he does. 
Now, we see this clearly in the closing argument of Christ in verse 8, which has been somewhat controversial to many people. It seems a little bit out of sync with the rest of the text to many people. Jesus says, I tell you that he will bring justice for them quickly. There it is. However, and here's the confusing part for most people, however, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? What does that mean? Okay, we got the point when he comes back, there will be judgment quickly. But what does it mean when the Son of Man comes? Will he find faith on the earth? Now, whenever you see those words like truly, truly, you see often, or verily, verily in the King James, or I tell you, you should zero in on that because Jesus is saying on his own authority that this is really true. It's really, really valid, the truthfulness of this statement. He promises the children of God that who go through the tribulation that they will receive justice. Truly, truly, I say to you, the God of justice will bring it quickly at his glorious appearing. But what does he mean by when the Son of Man comes? What will he find? Well, as you know, the second coming is the mechanism by which the justice of God is delivered to this world, especially to the chosen ones. The question is, when will they be ready to receive him? Or will they be ready to receive him? The Son of Man, as many of you know, is an eschatological term. It refers to the promised coming Messiah. And it was used primarily by Old Testament prophets looking to the time of the Messiah, you find it in Ezekiel 2 and Daniel 7. So that term, son of man, is always used in a prophetic sense. John uses it concerning the delay of the relief of the tribulation saints in Revelation 6 when he says, and there was given to each of them a white robe, and they were told they should rest for a while longer. Delay until the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who were to be killed, even as they had been, would be completed also. Judgment was delayed until God's program had been completed. But their delay would be vindicated when Christ came and brought the sword of justice with him. That's why persistency in prayer underscores the truth that we find in here about the faith. The Lord says, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Well, he's speaking to believers in a perilous situation during the 70th week of Daniel. Will he find, now let me restate this for you just a little bit better. Will he find the faith? You see, The expected answer for that question is no, because the faith spoken about is not an internal faith in people, but it has the definite article before pistos, the word that we interpret as faith or belief. That means Jesus is talking about the faith. The faith. Will he find the faith on the earth when he returns? Will he find the body of truth? Will he find the revealed doctrine of the Bible being practiced on earth? Will he find the 
faith? And the expected answer by the grammar there is a no. How can these people going through literally hell on earth as God unleashes his wrath upon it practice their faith? So to remain true to the Son of Man when he comes, Jesus says, be persistent in prayer and do not fail. Do not fall. Remain steadfast. So then, the proper response to those who are concerned by the delay of the parousia is to continue in prayer and not lose heart. Not lose heart. There's this interval that takes place between the rapture of the church and the glorious return of the Lord Jesus and those people caught in the midst. Those believers caught there will have to endure many things. Many things. Jesus says, pray, 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 and don't lose heart. I'm coming quickly. That's the same message for us today. As we endure trials and tribulations, as we lose loved ones, as we go through terrible diseases, as we suffer economic loss, pray, 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 and do not lose heart. As we close our time together, I'd like to consider some of the contrasts that are found in this text. To begin with, the widow was a stranger to the judge. She is asking for justice. But we, we are the children of God whom Jesus Christ loves and died for. He cares for us. Jesus is our friend, not a stranger. This poor widow had no access to the judge. She had to come to his tent and beg and cry out loud and wait outside. But we have access to him. We can come boldly to the throne of grace and bring our requests to him 24-7, 365 days a year. We don't have to plead with him again and again. He hears us the first time. He likes to hear us again and again, but he hears us every time we pray. We know that he won't brush us off. We know that he won't ignore us and shuttle us off out back to the city. He will answer us every time. For Paul writes to the Ephesians saying, It is through him. It is through him we have bold and confidence through faith in him. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive the mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. This widow had no friend at court to get her court to get her case on the docket. All she could do is walk around the tent and make a nuisance of herself, shouting at the judge. But believers have an addict, an, an advocate before the Father. We have a high priest that's constantly in the presence of God, bringing our requests to Him. Perhaps the greatest contrast in this text is of the widow who came to a court of law. We are the children of God who come to a throne of grace. This widow pled out of her poverty. We pray out of our riches. The point is inescapable that Jesus is making here. It's not about our earnestness in prayer that gives us hope. It's that we have a righteous judge who loves us, who cares for us, who dies for us, and who gives us the riches of his glory. How more blessed can a people be? Thank God we have a righteous judge. Would you pray with me? 
Father, we are so thankful that we don't have to wonder where we will go when we die. We have assurance that we will be with you. For it's recorded in the third heaven, in the books. We have assurance of your love for us, even here and now. And that all things work together for good for those who love you and are called. Help us, Father, to remember these truths that someday you will judge all things and make all things right. Help us to persist in prayer and not lose heart. Help us, Father, not to be like lost men who have no hope. Help us, Father, to live joyful, hopefully in this present world as we anticipate the return of our Savior at the rapture to take us home to be with him. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.